0: All right, you're listening to the how and Steve English podcast, a comfy place to talk about all the great and not so great parts of teaching ESL abroad. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Aaron R. Hello. He's a fellow hagwon owner, academy owner here in South Korea. So we're going to talk to him about his life and how he came over here. So stay tuned. All right, before we dive in, Aaron, I've got to give a shameless plug. Go to how and dot com and check out our blog for a bunch of free games, a bunch of cool little card games that Hal made that you can uh, download, print, laminate, cut up, give to your kids and practice usually the question, um, short answer and statement version of language. So it's really good for a native speaker class. Uh, yeah, go there. And if you like it, give us money for the monthly membership. If you buy a monthly membership, we can make more stuff and everybody's happy. And that's awesome. All right, Aaron, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm really excited to have you on because uh, I guess our listeners don't know, but you're one of the people that I've turned to in the past or over the past four or five years for advice with uh, with our academies here in Korea.
1: Yeah, I like to help.
0: And um, yeah, so I think you're probably one of the folks that has a really good, a good uh, insight into what it's like to live in south korea what it's like to make that jump over here um as an esl teacher and then what it's like to transition from just being that esl teacher into something more into finding that revenue stream or income stream in teaching that will support you and support your family as you grow older so um i guess first things first how did you find your way over here all
1: right uh uh try to make a long story short um so I went to university for four years, and I have a degree in uh, my title is communication studies and theater with emphasis in speech communications. But basically, I all I did was debate for about three to three and a half years, and it's I live and breathe it, and it was all I did. And I was kind of I was I was successful regionally, and uh, but you know I I'm the type of person that gets obsessed into something, and uh, so I was so focused in on that that I just thought I would like a, like a career in that would just open up. But then I, my eyes kind of opened up at the end about what it is to actually have a career in uh, uh, in academia and higher education and kind of how political and arbitrary it is. And I was kind of disillusioned. And, uh, so I kind of left, uh, slightly with my tail behind my, between my legs and I didn't want to go to graduate school, which would have been the next step for me. So I was kind of, I will not say felt defeated, but I felt, um, you know, what was it all for? So I went home and I just kind of worked the same job that I had been doing in the summers uh, for the same company my father had worked for for a long time. And uh, so I did that for two years and a few promotions here and there, and I was making okay money, um, but I wasn't happy. And because of that, my personal life, I just didn't have any motivation. And so after two years of that, uh, lo and behold, on a debate website, a debate forum uh, that that we uh some debaters use Uh, somebody posted a job in a uh, dhe dhe dong uh uh, uh, gangnam for a a debate teacher and i was like hmm all right well i need to do something different in my life because this is getting boring and so that's what brought me over and i had i had one friend who was already had he went directly from university so he had been here for a little over uh a little short of two years so i kind of knew a little bit about it and so i came over to teach debate And that's what brought me over originally.
0: And what year was that?
1: That was 2008.
0: 2008. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I love people who came here before I did. So I came here in 2012. Mm -hmm. Uh, What did Korea look like in 2008?
1: Well, from a foreigner perspective, I think a big difference, uh, a big – there's a big timeline break. And that timeline break is when social media – uh, uh, what's the word? Um, went. It's not went viral, but it it went big. Uh, once social media went big, and there were groups, and it was easy to connect with people, it was a lot different because uh, everything was easier for foreigners coming over. And I think you started. And I think that's why the wages stagnated. To be honest, is there's, you know, it when I went to Korea, not not that it was that much before you but it was still kind of a mystic thing because you know you couldn't show your parents oh here's the people that I'm gonna go see because you know the internet and social media most people's parents weren't on social media at that point um, then at about 2011 2012 people started figuring out groups on Facebook and other social media and then it became all everyone was so, so much more connected it was uh, not as big of a deal to come over so I would say that's the big difference is that you were a lot more on your own prior to social media taking off, uh, with my generation. Does that make sense to you?
0: Yeah, that's really really interesting because it was a whole hell of a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, when I came back here mm-hmm. in 2014 because of social media. Yeah. Um, in 2012, I think I was on like a Facebook, a Facebook boycott, ah. and so I wasn't using it that much. Yeah. Uh, locally. But yeah, it must have been a really wild time. So um, how did your parents take the news that you were coming abroad? They were kind of
1: happy, I think, because, you know, I think every father wants their son to do something better than they did. But I was kind of like uh, I wasn't writing his coattails because uh, he actually wasn't working for a company anymore at that point. But, I mean, I was kind of following in his footsteps, but not doing it any better than he did it. So I think he was – he was like he had reservations like any parent would, but I think he he thought I needed to go do something different. So I think he, they were in support of it.
0: Oh, and I think I missed the big question. Now, where were you at this time? Uh, Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska. Yeah, so that contrast must have been really huge when you got on that airplane and then got here. Yeah. On that first day. That first
1: I know. I, for, at first I was like, oh, man, Korean people this, Korean people that, Asia this. And then it took me a while to realize, oh. I lived in Fairbanks, Alaska. This is just also just being in a big city. <laughs> uh, uh, and people are different in a big city versus a small city. Yeah. Big giant contrast.
0: And so I think the flight from Alaska is really wonky, right? Yeah. I've like seen you say that. Yeah, flights.
1: that's – that, uh, that was one of my first conflicts with uh, Korean employers is uh, I think they, they bought me a ticket from Seattle and I was like trying to explain to them, hey, yo, I <laughs> – like it's, it's still like a thousand dollars more to get me there. And, and they didn't, they wouldn't budge. And at that point I'd already turned in my two weeks notice. And, uh, my job was, I was in a union and it was good enough to where they were, they already found someone to replace me. And, uh, and it was like, ah, oh, geez, I'm, I'm screwed. Uh, but I, so I ended up just paying the money anyways. Cause I was like, well, all right, I'm, I'm in for a pound. So. Okay, I came over here. Yeah, but yeah, you know, there are no direct flights. There are almost no direct flights from Asia to Alaska. That There's a handful of them from Japan, but they're all controlled by tour companies. Um, so basically, if you want to go to Alaska from Asia, you got to go to West Coast. So it kind of almost doubles the price of any airfare, which is uh, annoying now that I have family and I want to go back to Alaska more often.
0: But it is what it is. Was that flight really rough for you? Were you excited? Were you just pissed that you're taking a 20 hour flight? How was no, it? No,
1: I had fun. I love adventure, so uh, everything was great. Um, yeah, coming over here was smooth.
0: Th- did they have free alcohol at that time?
1: You know, they did, but I, well, I, actually I shouldn't say, I don't know if they did, but I didn't, at that time I didn't even know about, I was so afraid because I'd only ever flown domestic, you know, in domestic you had to pay like $5 for a drink. and. Uh, I did so. I didn't even ask, you know. So if they, so if like if a steward said, "Do you want beer?" I would just assume that they're going to try to charge me for it. So I didn't even experiment uh, <laughs> about it. So now I was I I played it pretty straight laced.
0: <laughs> so you got here, and what was that like getting off the uh, airport? Because Hal and Sean and and a few people have the craziest stories about when they arrived in Korea.
1: My. My story is not crazy. It was just my – well, I don't want to go too far down this pathway on this podcast. But uh, my director was the nephew of the owner and and he had no business being the director. He was – I think he was uh, late 20s and he just had no life skills. Like The only the reason he had that position was because uh, of his family. So they picked me up and they're driving and it's him and it's one of the teachers there. And I think they kind of had like a little flirt thing going on. So they basically were ignoring me, uh, which was – I mean – I don't know. They don't, it's not their job to socialize with me, but, you know, you're sitting in the back of a car. Kind of, you know, this is my f- big journey here. And uh, so th- then they, as we get into Seoul, um, they're like, do you, would you like to eat? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. Let's go eat, do something because I had uh, energy. I was uh, I think I slept a bit on the flight. And they're like, because eh, we're kind of tired. It's like, oh, OK. And then they, they take me to the apartment. And the first thing I noticed in the apartment is the trash hadn't been taken out. And, uh, so like nobody, none of them from the company had went into the apartment and like made sure things were cool. So, uh, so yeah, they dumped me there and they're like, in the morning, I will come and pick you up. So I, you know, I wasn't that tired and I, I, I was a little bit anxious. So, you know, I only slept like for five hours. So I'm just sitting there. Uh, and then I I remember the the one thing I, I remember hearing the bongo trucks drive by selling stuff and I was like, you know, I had no idea what they are saying. And I was like, man, it's so strange, flaring, you know, speaking, and I don't know what they're saying. And uh, yeah, and then it came and picked me up. So it was kind of um, uh, an unfriendly start, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a
0: hardship. So you mentioned the director and the director's son. I'm sure we'll get into that in a minute. I think it's kind of uh-huh. something that some of our listeners are a little bit confused on because the idea of academies is so different in other parts of the world um Mm -hmm. and even inside of korea there are academies like you know what i run or what the people around me run which are just you know uh private education but not like so for some reason people imagine xavier's academy in westchester new york oh yeah like an actual private thirty thousand dollar a year school but these are after school just supplementary classes but what, what was yours was it more of the one of these gigantic techie academies or was it a small no
1: one? it wasn't no it was a small one uh yeah actually i hadn't planned to talk about this too much um but uh what it was was the it was the owner um you know i uh fast forward to the end of the story i within two weeks of arriving i was told that this company's closing down so within, uh, within three weeks, I had to find another job. Uh, so that was really hard. Yeah, I was so pissed at that, at that point in my life. Um, but uh, what it was is he had been a co-investor in some other hogwan, And I don't – these are things I don't know, but I've kind of fit, filled in the dots from what I, I've heard. So he probably was – he had getting, gotten money from some other academies and he wanted to start his own thing. So he had hooked up with a director uh, who had uh, some seniority in this community to make a debate academy because at that time, debate was kind of this new thing and uh, they wanted to cash in on it. And he wanted revenue that he wasn't sharing with other investors, other co-investors. So he started it and this all happened before I came. Uh, Something soured between the relationships and uh, some of the teachers there, they speculated, but I don't know if they could be wrong, that this director was – you know. Either stealing, or for whatever reason, the owner thought that this director wasn't acting in his interests, so he fired him. And I guess it was a, it was a big dramatic thing. They uh, one day he was barred from entering his office, and there was a huge fight. Um, and uh, so they fired him. All the kids had to uh, not kids, all the teachers had to sign new contracts. And then they that's when they brought in this new director who was his nephew, um, and basically that the director that they fired you know he took as many of, the, of their students as they could and you know made the, the he made the fatal blow at that point and then months down the road when I was
0: there uh, they closed oh, what a nightmare story
1: yeah well here's the thing I was pissed about is I, I understand harming someone for your own interests so I was harmed by being brought over here for a job that really didn't exist. Uh, and if that benefited you, that would make sense. But it didn't benefit you, them, uh, because they're the ones who paid for my travel expenses and some recruitment fee to the guy who, who connected me with them. And uh, so I thought that it was like, not, not only am I angry at you, I'm also angry at you be, for being stupid to yourself. Because uh, I, I remember sitting there, I was like, why? Why would you bring me over here? Why would you waste that money? And, you know, it, when someone's stupid, they all they can do is just look at you and say with their with say with their blinking eyes I'm stupid <laughs> uh, yeah so um, that's how I started wow. which it which in a way it it made me jaded for my maybe my first year or two which helped me in negotiations but if I look back and I'm like some of the, I was probably a little bit too hard negotiating with some people like but uh I don't know it's all in the past
0: so I really I want to ask you about that because it must have been such a stressful time but before that I'm just curious you said this was a debate school you found it advertised on a debate forum and Mm -hmm. for our listeners out there you'll find that a lot you'll be brought into a school that focuses on debate or um, we recently had a fellow on the podcast who had taught at an international school and was in charge of actually the core classes the core curriculum so he was teaching math and science in English but actually it wasn't math and science because the kids couldn't understand anything um, I'm curious. Yeah. Even though you were only there for three weeks, what was it like?
1: Well, I remember looking at the attendance sheets, and I didn't—I didn't know anything about the business of academies. But I remember thinking, "How are they affording my salary?" Because <laughs> they had not they didn't have many students in my classes, um, and uh, so I remember that. Uh, what was it like? Um, I had maybe. Two uh, – out, maybe out of my eight classes in total because they were they were on the deep line. I had two classes where what I was doing was really hitting it. In fact, I had – even though I was there for a very short time, I made very close relationships with uh, two families and their kids because – you know, I, I actually knew debate. Uh, you know, I at that time I didn't know how to teach English, but I knew debate well, and uh, so I was really uh, clicking with those kids because they they were at a language level and a, a mature a maturity level where they could do the really understand debate, so they loved it. And the rest of them, it, I didn't understand. You know, this is a skill that I've learned now is like sometimes you have to have the students do this system, whether it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a science book or whatever. They can't do it. It's your job as a teacher to kind of make them feel that they did do it and they learned something. You know what I mean? So they have some value. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't have that skill. So I was going in there thinking they were wrong because they can't do what I'm supposed to do from this book instead of trying to be a little bit more flexible and fill in those gaps. Um, so that so those classes, I was pr- probably a, a failure <laughs> uh, uh, for that very short time, if that answers your question.
0: That's a really interesting point. I'm going to have to pick up on that later because I think that's something that the teachers often talk about. They get a, a curriculum that doesn't match the student's level, and then you kind of just resent the school for putting you in that situation. Why did you basically tell me that mm-hmm. why did you lie or why did you say these children are you know debate level students but they don't know the word difficult or yeah side um, yeah i'm gonna have to bring you on again to talk about your teaching philosophy because that's really interesting what you just said yeah um, well thank you i feel important <laughs> you are important so three weeks what happened they, they must have kicked you out of your apartment you must have been so stressed out trying to. no
1: try well, the most stressful thing was I said, hey, what am I going to do? And the director is like, you find a job or go home. And I'm like, I'm like, are you going to find me a job? Maybe. <laughs> he, he didn't care at that point. He was thinking about his future. He wasn't thinking about my future, which and I understand that he's an employee. Um, uh, so what happened? That was crazy because th- and this is going way back in your questions. You said, what, what was the big difference between, you know, coming at that time versus now we had no, there were no no smartphones. So like even a subway ride was a huge, uh, uh, especially from a guy from Fairbanks, Alaska, I've never been on a, a, a big city Metro. And, uh, so I, I, eventually, I, I put my, uh, resume on work and play, which was like the biggest thing back then. And, um, uh i and then i started getting inundated with these text messages and broken english and these phone calls from people who couldn't speak english and i didn't at that time i didn't know the whole recruitment game and all the levels of this stuff that was going on i didn't understand any of it but one morning at about eight uh a young uh korean lady called me up and she could speak enough english and she said come to anyang and uh so I figured it out on the map how to get there, and I, I probably I probably missed my transfers like three times, and it took me like two and a half hours to get down there. I finally got down there. They were just a, they were they were desperate for. Um, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say anything prejudicial, but you know, a, a stereotypically looking English teacher, because they, they had been hiring Filipinos and uh, other things, and they just wanted something that they could show parents, and uh, so they were like ecstatic they saw me, and uh, we, we, we negotiated salary, and they were, I, I was at a, I came at a pretty high salary as a debate teacher, and, um, and they were able to meet me at only, I'd only have to lose a hundred bucks a month. And uh, so I was like, bam, OK, we got it done. And then I basically – this is, this is just my business sense. Once everything is settled with my deal, I just say, hey, this is my director. You guys negotiate how this is going to work between me. But I got I to gotta have a place to stay. So you got to figure out when you're going to get me a place to stay and when they're going to let me leave the apartment. And you got to solve all those problems. Those are on your plate for me to come here. And uh, that's what I did. So um, now I didn't know what I was getting into. That's a, There's more to that story. Uh, this place had a lot of problems too. But uh, that's what transitioned me from that place to that place. So, for one week, I for one week they didn't have an apartment down in Anyang. So for one week, they were such jerks to me at the, the old school. They would make me check my. I would have to in the morning. I would check my key in at the, at that academy, get on the subway from Gangnam, go down to Anyang, and I didn't know efficient. I would take the whole line one, the big looping one, all the way down. So it'd be like ninety minutes, and uh, go there. Teach, come back, go to the academy, get my key, and then stay for the night. I had to do that for one week. So I mean, it was it was hard, but it was only five days. And uh, and then they moved me, moved me into my place. And uh, it's uh, that chapter of my life in Korea
0: closed. <laughs> <laughs> the checking in of the key at the front desk just reminds me of the just the bat wild stuff that Hal or I would have to go yeah. through just making it difficult for no reason
1: well what they they wanted to be able to show the apartment but i mean i it, it's just, this is some of korean culture i mean it, it once that once they have identified there's no more value for the future relationship uh they don't care about you <laughs> so they don't care about your convenience so it's only about their convenience so they want to have the key if anybody wanted to check out the apartment that's so all that's why they did it uh I, in in hindsight now, I would have been more firm about certain points, but I don't. I try not to worry too much about what happened in the past. Just learn from it, and use those lessons for the future.
0: So in Anyang, what did um was Anyang built up at that time?
1: Well, already? you know, Anyang is a big area, and I was in the poor area. <laughs> I did not know that at the time when I went there. Uh, so where I was at was um about. Five or six blocks from Anyang Station, it, right next to the technical high school Anyang Gungo. Um and it was a kind of a cra- I was in a crappy apartment. Like in the bottom floor was a nor- like a one of those like drunkard Noribongs, and then the bathroom was on the first floor. So like every time I walk up to my apartment, like I, it just smells like piss, and uh, and uh, yeah, so no, it wasn't that built up at that point. Um, uh, yeah.
0: Could you tell a difference between where you had been living in Techi versus where you now lived in Anyang? Could you tell there was a, you know, class? Oh yeah. Or, you know, oh, this is like the Upper East Side and this is, this is like 134th street. Could you tell?
1: Um, I mean, it wasn't night and day. And uh, to be honest, I was so focused on all of my problems that I wasn't focused on just being present and, you know, and, and observing things because I've gone through all these stressful experiences, but, um, in hindsight I definitely can and I think I kind of started noticing it too um, uh, you know like when I moved where I was at there was one block away from me there's a there was a Subway restaurant you know and when you went when I went to Anyang there was no international food um, so yeah that type of stuff and then yeah the, the the types of students was a little bit different you know most of most of my students in DHE they were from wealthy families but I you know that's Monday quarterbacking. Now, now that I know a lot more about Korea, I could I know the differences between those, but um, at the time, maybe not so much.
0: What did your shift look like when you started working at Anyang?
1: In Anyang, that was the weird thing. Is uh, again here now I know the back history. Is you know there. This is one thing I'll say. There, there was a time in Korea, I would say up to about two thousand five ish, where like anybody could open a hot one and you just made money. Um, and so all these older Korean men were opening these hogwans and getting rich. And then, then you had these corporate competitors coming out. You had Chungdam, Polly, Avalon, and they started going after these guys who were making all this money. And, but they didn't know what they were doing in operations. And they weren't supported by a franchise that was training them to be good operators. They were just like, man, I'm making money. And um, uh, they didn't know if they were teaching the kids or anything. And uh, so he made a lot of money, and he was on the decline. He had sold it, but part of the selling deal was he stayed in, he stayed on as director on paper, to make it kind of look like it the ownership hadn't changed hands. So you had the owner that I wasn't really connected with. Then you had a director who he didn't give a crap about the place because uh, I don't think he would – he might have gotten some nominal salary, but he had another job too, and um, and then I had a head teacher who. She was an, she also didn't know what she was doing about running it. They just hired her because she could speak English and talk to me and um uh, uh, so in in all that uh quagmire, I was able to manipulate things so they never negotiated with me when I should go home. So when I finished classes, I just go home. And I didn't realize until later the Korean teachers were pissed because you know Korean teachers, you go home when it, it, the academy closes ten. But hey, if my classes were done at seven, I'm out of there. I just bounce. And uh, they were upset about that. Uh, so that was kind of my schedule was maybe I'd show up two thirty and leave seven seven thirty eight thirty. If they ha- if they had classes for me, I'd stay. But they their middle school program sucked. So.
0: Uh, I usually go home, not not too late. About how many students do you think you had to teach every week?
1: Well, I remember how many students they had th- this is the funny thing. Is so, I show up after I I do that one week of commuting back and forth, and then the very next week, the head teacher, who's a, she's incredibly incompetent, um, I know, and I know that in hindsight, I didn't know that at the time. Um, she sits us down for a meeting, and she says, "Oh no." We lost 20 students this month. We only have 100 students this month at the academy. And we have we have a teaching staff of maybe six teachers. If anybody knows the math, that, that's not profitable. <laughs> and uh um and uh And I'm thinking like, wait, no, you can't pin this blame on me. I just worked for one academy that closed. And now my very first staff meeting, you're complaining to me that students are quitting. I'm not responsible for that. And uh, so that's how I knew. So there's a hundred students at the academy and they had two foreign teachers. They had me and a Filipino teacher. So I would say uh, uh, 50-ish at a given month.
0: And do you remember what type of books or curriculum you were teaching and how your classes went?
1: That was a YBM school. So I was doing I think it's called the Playground series and play something, playground. They had like level one, two, three, four, five, six. And sometimes they throw me a book here or there. And then the middle school, they had no idea what to do for middle school. So they would, they would just buy Tulsa uh Tessal book. No, not Tesla. What is it? Cobal? The uh, TOEFL, I'm sorry. Yeah, they would do TOEFL books. But I, I at that time, I hadn't taken any professional development upon myself. So I didn't even understand what TOEFL was about. So it was just like, uh, uh, yeah, let's listen to this. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> it's track 68 on this MP3 player. Okay. And they didn't even have a computer for me. So I'd be like, one, two, three, four, <laughs> up to 68 uh, to play it. So I, I did a pretty terrible job uh, implementing that curriculum for them. Uh, But at the same time, they didn't train me or manage me to do it well either. Uh, So anyways, yeah, it was the YBM. It was a basic YBM program, which of all the big corporations out there, it is the most shite elementary programming I've ever seen. It's terrible.
0: I've seen a lot of bad elementary programs.
1: Well, this is the thing that would tick me off is, you know, like anything, they were very concerned about not going too fast because the book is terrible. That's always the thing is when books are really good, it's always a rush to finish it. When books are really bad, it's always uh, how can we make it go slower because there's just not enough content in the book. So like some days the Korean teacher would be like, oh, today your job is a song. And oh, yeah, we just changed the schedule because of busing. You have 55 minutes. So here I'm in a a class of three kids because they're failing. And I'm supposed to do a song for 55 minutes, and I have no ESL training. You know, I'm only, only reason I came over here is because i I knew about debate. <laughs> I don't even remember how I got through those classes. It was, uh, you know, now I know a, a lot more of what you, you have to bring in uh, uh, auxiliary stuff to uh, to fluff the time. But um,
0: yeah, how long did you stay there at that academy?
1: Well, and that. And let, let me actually, and maybe I'll pick a slight pause and fast forward you through the, all the times. <laughs> okay. Um, th- that academy was failing. I stayed there for seven months. They basically f- half fired me, half replaced me with a Filipino teacher because they, they hired me at a high salary, but they were failing. So, you know, it just made sense for them to move on. And frankly, they didn't know how to manage me, and I wasn't what they needed. Uh, so, I don't hold a grudge and they, they gave me half my severance. They were real nice to me at the end. Uh, they settled me up. So I thought it was the best. I went to, the next place I went to uh, was with a recruiter in Songpa back up in the Seoul near Olympic Park. And the guy, he was uh, kind of honest with me. He said, look, my academy is failing, but I have a plan to stay in business for one year. And at that point I hadn't had a vacation yet. So all I wanted to do was have a vacation travel. So I was like, oh, okay. He says he's going to stay in business for a year. He stays in business for six months. So the, and now that's my second academy closing, and all three of my academies I've been with, uh, I've been with now, um, have uh, have uh, financially been failures, and two of them have closed. So I went through that again, and then I had the kind of the dream situation. I had a new franchise uh, opening up in Daegu. and they're going to hire me back up at a, uh, at a higher salary than I'd made at any other place to be their debate teacher. Um, and I think my, this is my thought process. All right. It's a new city, but, uh, if they're opening up, there's no way they'll close within a year because they'll at least let it try for a year before they, before they give up on their initial investment. So I took that and I ended up working in Daegu for about a little bit over two years. And then I got my dream job back at Poly and worked with them, uh, uh, corporately. And I was kind of half middle management, half debate teacher. So I would do all debate and all management and I didn't do any ESL. Um, and that was really nice. And then I married my wife and that was my next transition. So uh, sorry to take over your interviewing, but that's kind of what happened. That, that's the where I'm going with it all. So,
0: uh, Me and the listeners are just enjoying the story. So you okay. take us wherever you want to go. All
1: right.
0: So that's a lot. So before you married your wife, how many years did you end up living in Korea? Um, let's see. Boom, boom, boom. Four, a uh,
1: shy, a little bit shy of four.
0: And so you had a few kind of nasty interactions and a few negative business relationships, and then you had some of the best relationships. It sounds like um, during that time.
1: Yeah, there's some ups and downs. Um, the like I, said, I feel like if if you get me talking, I could probably cover an hour for each one of these schools of what I learned from them the the c2 i worked at c2 daegu c2 was a i don't know if they even exist anymore it was you know like every year you have like like korea gets like one harvard spot a year it's really competitive to become from korea and go to harvard and they slot it and uh usually that guy always ends up going into running hog because they just they use their reputation of being a, a harvard graduate and that was basically this guy he had started um academies in georgia um Uh, for you know korean immigrants and korean descendants that are living there and um he partnered with someone to to take the brand to korea and um all of all of the corporate locations that they had in seoul were failing at this time but there's a guy in daegu he wanted to buy a cheaper franchise so he went with c2 and um he uh he opened up so the cool thing about that school is you know they basically they ran a monday thursday tuesday friday schedule and wednesday after the young kids were finished they were just open and they just basically said do debate so they give me students and i was completely in charge of it there's no textbook there's nothing and i like i won't say everything i did was a like the greatest success but it was I mean I had students that lasted two years there with, with me and that was just revenue coming in that it they didn't even have to manage I was doing it all myself and uh, but I learned a lot from having to do it all myself it's probably where I learned the most about business wasn't wasn't was there in Daegu. there was also on that staff there's a Korean American who he had went to international school in America for high school and so he knew all about the competitiveness with teachers and he kind of took me aside and he said look you know, when I hired English teachers, if I don't like them, I fire them. And he explained to me TOEFL and how you do TOEFL to actually prepare for the test. And he explained to me the point structure. And he really schooled me on, like, the difference between just going in there with a book and going in there knowing how to get the best score possible. And that's what your job is. And uh, so from – at that point, I really knew a lot about TOEFL at that point. And I knew and – I, and I learned how to implement my programming for debate. So I, I kind of walked away there with a a lot of knowledge um, about how to be successful. So my next school I went to, like, uh, not my peers. My peers were jealous of me. Some of them, I mean, the haters, you know, there's always haters on any staff, but um, uh, they were a little bit jealous of me, but my management, like, they thought I was just a god because I knew, I knew everything. I didn't have, they didn't have to teach me anything. Um, You know, I knew wear a suit your first month, you know, The, the things they don't tell you about how to, solidify the student's perception of you at that campus so they think of you as a good teacher and the mothers like you and they don't complain, you know?
0: What are those ways to solidify the idea of you as good Um,
1: teacher? You know, it's been seven years since I've done that, but I would tell anybody who's going to a new... Well, first of all, I guess I would say is if you've never done it, you're going to fail in the beginning. And the best thing you can do is learn from your failures. But the small things you can do is if I was going... There's a big difference when you go into a school where you're the only foreign teacher versus if you're going into a school where you're on a staff. But – and and I'm going to talk about as a man because I can't say what a woman should do because there's different expectations for women than there are for men. But as a man, I would say your first month, wear a suit every day Uh, because you know what? If you wear a suit for the first first month every day, the kids will remember that even if you slack off on your dress later. They'll just remember that that's the guy that wears suits. Um, uh, Always be prepared. Uh, The next thing I would do is I would implement a reward system. Like I don't use a reward system now because I'm the owner and so I do things differently. But as a teacher, it's a good way for you to give token gifts to the students that will make them like you so like i i would do a sticker chart so the kids get a sticker for doing their homework getting a sticker for being good in class and then when they complete it they i would have like uh, mentos or something or like uh, fruit by the foot stuff like that when they complete the chart you know nothing too expensive but that that's one thing that's the other thing oh here's the one thing i would show up as early as possible for the first month and uh, I would just eat my lunch at work. It's like I can eat my lunch in my apartment or I can come in an hour early and eat my lunch while looking at the computer screen and do whatever I want. And Korean people will think you're working hard, <laughs> even though you might not be. But I, w- I made it a point. My, my last company I worked with, I made it a point to always be there before any other one of my staff members, which uh, made them annoyed because I raised the bar. But you know, my, and my job is not to make them like me. My job is to outshine them. Uh, if that makes sense. I don't... That sounds mean, but I, when you're working for these competitive schools, you want to be the best teacher because the best teachers get better deals for negotiating salaries. You
0: know. Well, you mentioned that you were mentored by a Korean-American mm-hmm. teacher. And oh, he uh, up, I'm sorry. You know, the he, he
1: was not Korean-American. He was Korean-Korean. He had just went to international uh, high school. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay. I, I misrepresented it.
0: So that guy took you aside and he kind of schooled you on you know just how work is here how teaching is and what the expectation is that you need to get for the kids on the test and and what the other teachers and the boss Mm -hmm. will expect from you can you tell us a bit more about that because it seems like you really have a good perspective on how to operate inside these well
1: well first of all you, you have to, well, actually, you, 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 uh, a teacher, a teacher needs to, in, especially in Korea, but I would say anywhere, you need to create a sense of confidence from the student to you that you're an expert in what you're teaching. Um, and ideally, you do that by being an expert, but sometimes you have to fake it until you make it. Um, but I would say, you know, for example, when it comes to TOEFL... Like, now I'm at a point, like, I'm not going to, like, I am, like, sometimes lazy. Like, but I also have been doing this for 10 years. I can, I can be a little bit lazy. But, like, if you're starting off doing TOEFL, you better like read that whatever you're going to, whatever content you're going to do in front of those students, you should probably have done all those questions yourself before you ever do them in front of the kids because you don't, because I know like there's that instinct as a teacher, like, Oh, I know. I can, I know TOEFL. I know the answer to that question before I do it. I don't need to listen to it before I do it. Go teach it. But you kind of do because those times where you get caught with your pants down because you didn't know the answer and you, maybe you corrected it wrongly or did it some way uh, not correctly. Um, So I would say, yeah, those sorts of things. And like, if you're going to teach TOEFL, you need to understand what is TOEFL. What is the top score? I mean, now, to be honest, I haven't taught TOEFL for a while. So if I'm behind on any new changes, I apologize. But like now it's, you know, it's 120. You have the four sections of 30 points and uh, you kind of have to understand what is a good score and how do you get those scores and uh, you know, what, the, what does a student need to do in each different section to improve, you know, when it comes to listening, you're focusing on note taking skills for, uh, you know, speaking. It's, it's, it's partly memorizing forms of how to respond to questions and identifying question types. And uh, yeah, you know, and you, you as a teacher, when, like I'm just using TOEFL as an example, like, but you can apply this to anything. You need to read it and then build your own like pedagogy or philosophy about it. So when class starts, you know, you can do a little lecture beforehand and, you know, those kids might not understand that lecture as much as you understand it, as you're saying the words, but that's going to make you seem like you're, you know, what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and that's going to create confidence in them to want to learn from you. And, you know, it's the private market. They can choose what teacher they want. And they're going to, if you, if you have someone you think's more of an expert than, a, than another person, you're going to go with the person that's an expert, right? So... Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, those are great points. I think it's really smart, and especially there at the end, you mentioned it's a private market, and you also mentioned "fake it till you make it." There are people that just fake it, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, especially as you become an academy owner, you'll be you'll look at all these franchises like you described when you when we first began this. Uh, some old dude just opened up an academy, and he doesn't say, "Hey, I'm an old dude who opened up an academy." and I don't really know what I'm doing. No, he says, yeah. you know, I'm the best. And so you're surrounded in a market mm-hmm. of people that are faking it, and yeah, nobody will ever admit that, and you can't call them out because that damages your reputation if you try yeah. and speak negatively about someone. So the only thing you can do is be the best version yeah. of a teacher in their mind. Yeah, and I, I, really
1: cool I want to i guess I add an addendum to it. I think you have kind of implied it that that fake it till you make it advice is not really for owners. That's more for the poor teacher who, you know, you know, you well, of course, you know your own language. You might not know how to teach it, but you're going to when it, you work for these private companies, you're not going to when you get hired, you don't know what they're what they actually need you for. And so sometimes you're going to be put into a classroom where maybe you got the book an hour beforehand so you do have to fake it and but you know hey maybe that weekend you put two hours away to go skim that whole book and you know or maybe even read the lesson beforehand you know what i mean that's what i mean by fake it till you make it is uh that's the 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 short-term band-aid and then eventually you actually do become the expert at the book you know or or whatever tasks that you're 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 doing
0: So one thing I'm really interested in when people tell me about coming over here is, you know, how their social life developed. So you told us that you came here in 2008 and you got married or you met your wife in about 2012. And in that interim, I'm sure it was a bunch of, you know, great experience of meeting new people Mm -hmm. and discovering, you know, your social life here. I'm just curious, how did that develop for you? And what exactly did you uh, did you make? Well, uh,
1: I don't know. I I have. I have... Sometimes I have a bit of a... I'm like a, I would say a social loner. <laughs> uh, so, you know, for the two years after university, I moved back to a city that I hadn't lived in for like eight years. Um, so I didn't have any friends. And I just basically did work and played games. <laughs> and I had no... I didn't make any effort to make any friends outside of work. Um, so then I came to Korea. Definitely I wanted to make friends. Um, but the very beginning was hard because I was moved... I moved the first company, you know, I I knew those people for like a week or two and then left. And then uh, my next place, um, there was like no foreigners around me. And again, this is where I go back to that whole, this is prior to social media. Now on social media, you know, I can figure out what is the most popular bar in any area for foreigners. And you just go there on a Saturday night and you're going to make friends as long as you're, you know, not too awkward. Uh, So I didn't really have a social life until about six months in maybe four months in i got hooked up with this bar um that kind of was the main foreign hub and actually i became really good friends with the owner who was korean and she actually became my roommate in daegu for two years that's a side story that i don't think is me interesting uh, so interesting to people but yeah um she was my roommate uh and um yeah, that was kind of my social life. And she's like – you know, she ran a bar, so she knows how to – she always has a giant flock of friends. So I could just kind of hang out with her and I always knew people and, and hanging out. And um, and then my next company in Daegu, um, uh, I formed really close relationships, especially – well, I, I became best friends with a guy there and his Korean wife was the one who introduced me to wife, my wife. And so that was basically my social sphere there. Um,
0: uh. Anyways, did you find yourself doing things a lot differently than you would back home?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I probably I drank in public a lot more than I would at home. <laughs> uh, uh, because that's just a natural thing to do. I think. Um. <sighs> you know, I was working for retail companies, so I was young for retail companies. So socializing with your coworkers in a retail company wasn't really a thing but when you come to Korea um your traditional company is like half Korean half foreign employees so and almost all the foreign employees are usually under the age of 30 so you have like this instant pe- group of people that you have so much in common with so i would say it's a lot easier to become friends with your coworkers and go outside after work and because most people are only looking one year or maybe two years down ahead like it's like if you, you know, if you work for a giant corporate company, like these, like your peers could, can become your competitors, but for Hogwans it's not really as much the same way. So it's, I think it's a little bit easier to be, form relationships with your coworkers. Uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I would say most foreigners I know in Korea, a lot of their friends are coworkers or colleagues, like even the, the public school teachers, they they might not be coworkers at a given location, but they know each other from the conferences and stuff. They seem to form friendships that way. And Uh, And then hog ones, hog ones, especially the big ones. They always seem to have clicks of people that click up from uh, their uh, 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 locations. I don't know. Do do you agree with my observation? That's how I kind of see it happening. But
0: yeah, it's uh, it seems more or less that it's the same as a dormitory. Yeah, it's kind of weird when you're in university you get all these different people from so many different parts of the world. or so many different parts of the United States and they place you on a floor and they have those first socializing events. Mm -hmm. And even though you're all new and you don't know each other and you're from different places and there's so many different people you can meet within the first week, they have already solidified into a close knit circle. It's like, all right, these are my friends and everybody else is a stranger. Yeah. Uh,
1: Can I interrupt you for one second? Yeah. yeah. I, that never happened to, to me until my last place um you know my first two schools i was the well for a while i was only either the only teacher or only one of two uh in daegu me and the other guy we were slightly at this point you know i was like 27 and he was 26 so like it's not old, but it's a little bit older for, like, uh, new, newish teachers. But we kind of created a, like, more mature environment. So it, it, didn't, it didn't get too clicky there. But then my last company, there was a staff of 25 foreigners. And definitely everything you said was really true there. It, was, it kind of had a high school mentality. Some people were like, I don't know. Maybe I'm being an old man here. But I'm, like, looking back, like, they were really immature. Like, almost pre-college, more like high school drama. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, it's why you can't allow yourself to be led around by other people. Yeah. So um, over here, you know, I, we were in the countryside, so it was okay. It was clicky. Like, they did develop a click. Um, but there were, it was 30 and 40 and 50-year-old people in that click. And like you said, like, the older you are, the older you – like, if you're not part of this competitive group of peers, then there's no reason to click up with people. Yeah. And so these 40 and 50-year-olds kind of kept the group in line. Yeah. And they were kind of weird. So I've heard there. They, it was a little bit strange, but you know, they were having a good time with life. So yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess it gets clicky, but it doesn't get too exclusive. I guess when you combine maybe some dating in there and like some yeah. scorned feeling, then it starts to get a little bit exclusive.
1: Yeah. There was a, there was a few, there's one guy who was dating a, a, a non-teaching staff member that created a couple conflicts and one girl, she, you know, she was dating foreign men, and then they would come into the circle, and they would they would create some drama. Yeah, I, actually, at this point, I'm watching this all on the side. Uh, if someone, I don't think anyone wants a biography on Aaron, but from about, about the time of my last year in Daegu until until I married my wife, um, I I was on a big personal transformation. I because at that point, I had weighed about 320 pounds, and uh, by the time I married my wife, I was down to about 180, 190. So I actually stopped socializing with people as so much because uh, you kind of have to stop going out and drinking if you want to lose weight. <laughs> so I, I was just mainly just watching it from from afar, but uh, uh, during this time. But yeah, they they definitely kind of would. But but anyways, I know what I wanted to say. My point was is that I never saw a clicky a click that wasn't willing to invite or wasn't willing to host new people. Like it wasn't like I, you can't be my friend. Like you might be in that clique and they might not like you after they get to know you and they don't want to hang out with you. But they were always friendly, I, I would say. I, The only time I see foreigners get unfriendly is when they get older and they think they're above other foreigners. That's the only time I've seen unfriendliness amongst foreigners in Korea.
0: That's a really good point. That They are very – like there are cliques and it is kind of strange um, at times. But it is really – they really try to be inclusive for the most part. Unless they figured out what you're about, and, like and then, yeah. and then they don't like you. Yeah, the, the guy that starts dating twenty of the same girls from the same group, or the girl who starts dating twenty of the same guys. Yeah, that's too yep. much. Too much. Mm-hmm. You don't like this. But you mentioned something which is really awesome. Um, you lost yeah. the weight.
1: Yeah, that, actually, that goes kind of back to my whole – in Daegu is where I kind of discovered that I want – if I'm going to do this, I want to be the best. And I realized that with that much weight, I was always going to be the fat teacher. Whenever Korean students saw me, the first thing they're going to see is, oh my god, he's a big, giant, fat guy. And uh, I was like, you know what? I think I can be more than that. And, and you know, also, I just want to do it for my own health. And, and there's, it wasn't just for my teaching, but it kind of went hand-in-hand hand with, you know, I want to be better – I. I'm the like from my debate background. I like to win, so if I'm gonna teach, I want to win at teaching. Now, winning at teaching, it's not it's not the same as debate. They don't just say, "Hey, you're the winner," uh, and and give you a trophy. Um, It it comes in different in different uh, feedbacks, but uh, so that's kind of what motivated me was just to lose the weight. So,
0: that's huge, man. That's I mean that's kind of a massive massive deal. So it'd be just awesome. In a vacuum that you were able to lose weight and be healthy and keep it off but the fact that you're like you said you're in a very competitive environment your your friend said these are things that um you'll be judged Mm -hmm. on and maybe he didn't mention weight but i mean in in life in general there's a a bias against overweight people and especially in korea that bias is actually kind of at the forefront of how they perceive you and how they'll how they'll talk about you so much so that a fat teacher often is thought of, Oh, that can't be a good teacher. That's yeah. better. Yep. Um, so that must've just been a huge relief.
1: Well, it's, it, it, you know, it, it happened over about an 18, the major weight loss happened over 18 months. So it wasn't really like binary, uh, like, Oh, today I'm not I'm no longer fat <laughs> um, there's like a few milestones when you know when you do the first big clothes shopping because like nothing fits anymore um, that's over that feel that's probably honestly today the biggest thing that motivates me to keep the weight off is clothes <laughs> I love being able to go to Korean stores and buy Korean clothes uh, cuz I like Korean clothes uh, and uh and then so the biggest thing the biggest positive memory i remember going shopping and i had a f- uh, 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 a platonic female friend and she took me out clothes shopping and it's like oh damn this feels good i never thought i could have worn something like this because you know when you're when you're that fat clothes shopping is it's stressful and it's not fun it's like it's like where do you, where do you got the fat clothes over here sir you have, you have choices. You want brown or black? <laughs> that's all your choices are, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah. And then as soon as you can fit into the normal sizes that they carry, you can, yeah, you can pick out anything.
0: So uh, that's that's really really great point. It's really not fun. So I, I did similar to you. I, like I was fat. I was I think I think I might have been touching mm-hmm. three hundred. I'm much shorter than you, so I looked more uh-huh. circular, dwarfish. Um, and then I lost the yeah. I lost Mm a hundred pounds and it was, I just was so pleased with myself. I'm like, man, I'm walking, it doesn't hurt and nothing's touching anything. Like my arms aren't sliding against my belly. My legs aren't, not to be gross to our listeners, but you know, just such a huge, huge comfort boost, which was such a big confidence boost. (laughs) So I've got to go, I've got to go lose it all, but like, yeah, man, Shopping in Korea was – I didn't get to that part. I was 10 pounds away mm-hmm. from doing that. But that was always my dream too, just shopping at in Korea and buying like a $5 daisoo yeah. button-up. Yep.
1: You know, I, uh, You know, and like I said, I, I didn't want to make this podcast about weight loss. And uh, I would just say anyone who's listening uh, who is dealing with weight loss, I mean, I don't want to give anybody stress for not doing it or haven't done it because I know, number one, that doesn't help people. Uh, you just gotta, frankly, you gotta figure out what motivates it for yourself, and then and then action it, and then basically block out everybody else because most people will give you either bad advice or negative advice, and uh, you just gotta ignore them and do it yourself.
0: And so I guess um, you worked for other people for four years, and then you met your wife. Yep. And. That would lead us into an academy story about how you yeah. moved from being an ESL teacher to an academy owner. But it looks like we're about to hit that one-hour mark. Which...
1: Yeah, well, man, it sounds like you need a part two. I, I feel like I haven't really said anything that valuable yet because like, everything I have important to say is about uh, operating in a hog one. But
0: yeah, we'll, we'll have to make that part two.
1: Yeah. Um. Well, just to just to kind of wrap it up and set up the if if there is a part two um uh yeah i met my wife through this is back the back in daegu uh this guy it's it was such a funny love story uh i'm at this point i was like you know what either i'm gonna have a relationship that keeps me in korea or i'm getting out of this country because i just can't deal with you know not because at that point i figured my next progression in life was to make a family i needed to do that and if i'm not going to do that here then i needed to go to go back to america and um i was on the phone with her kind of just you know poor me pity me i can't find a relationship and uh and at the same within the same 24-hour window my future wife was doing that to her she introduced us on cacao we started talking for like it was like every night would be like three hours on cacao uh messaging each other and then we started talking on the phone and and the relationship went from there um and uh She had been operating privately for maybe three or four years in the small town that I eventually moved to where her family lives and um, uh, very small town. And uh, it was like we had a choice. Do I keep my job here? I was making pretty good money with this company or and does she close down what she has or do I go there? And what the difference was is I wanted to have kids soon and I thought it would be better to have kids there. And um, at there have been times in this last seven years I have really lamented that choice. And but now that I'm on the other side of the tunnel, so to speak, uh, I, it was the right choice to make. Um, but that was probably the, one of the harder choices that really affected the direction of my life and uh, set me up for running a hagwon with my my new wife. So that's kind of the button up to the first part of my Korean life.
0: I'm really excited to do part two that sounds like it's gonna be really interesting
1: yeah all
0: right Aaron is there anything that you'd like to say as far as advice or any tips to any of these folks out there whether they're new teachers here longtime teachers or folks that are thinking about getting married and worried about what they're gonna do for income
1: well those are two different groups of people I I would speak to them a lot differently um, uh, my biggest thing this is the this is the mistake I see most foreigners making is be honest with what you want for your short-term goals and your long-term goals and don't I there is a time in your life not to have so many cares like I don't think you have to have a 10-year plan at all times of your life but be honest so you know I tell a lot of people come to Korea and do one year and leave and you'll get the most out of it than anyone else will. But the longer you stay, it's going to kind of it's going to it's going to sidetrack your life unless you end up doing like what I'm doing, where I'm going to be staying longer term uh, or maybe forever. Um, So be honest. So if you just want to be here for a year, just focus on what you can do to make this year that most valuable to you and uh, or or two years. Uh, So if your goal is just to have fun, do that. But I would really advise against you staying in Korea for three years or four years or five years if you just want to be able to have fun because you're just gonna waste the most valuable times of your life. Um, And uh, yeah, and then everything you do, try to add value to yourself and the person you're exchanging with. So if you're being employed by an academy, try to add value to yourself and to them as much as you can. And you might fail at it, but get better at it. Um, And when you do that, life will reward you. Uh, by giving you better opportunities because anybody who's out there putting value what whoever it is steve jobs or bill gates or uh or the kebab guy they're all adding value to what they're doing and because of that they get rewarded so if you focus on just adding value to people's lives uh through what you do you're it'll come back and you're gonna get rewards so i don't know does that sound like good advice
0: i think it's really good advice it's pretty wise All right, Aaron, um, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll definitely do this again.
1: All right. Well, thank you. I had a lot of fun.
0: Great. See you guys. All right.